Our sermon today is taken from Romans 12, verse 9 to 21. Here's the word of God. Let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable inside of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Thus says the Lord. Friends, we're continuing now in our sermon uh, through the series of Romans. And right now we are in the middle of chapter 12. And if you've been with us throughout the whole series, you probably noticed that Paul's tone here in chapter 12 changed a little bit, right, from the previous part of the letter. Whereas Paul in chapters 1 to 11 spent most of his time teaching big picture theology kind of stuff, right? About the gospel, about God's big plan of redemption that's accomplished on the cross and all the details surrounding that. Now, in the last few chapters of the book of Romans from 12 to 16, he's switching gears and he's kind of spelling it out for us, the day-to-day implications of all the theology that he just got done teaching from chapter 1 to 11. Right? How does that practically spell out in our day-to-day lives? And it's important that you don't disconnect the two. You can't disconnect the gospel theology that Paul's preached from chapters 1 to 11 with the day-to-day application uh, that's in chapter 12 to 16. One is the implication of, of the other. That's why in the beginning of chapter 12, Paul says this. Before he gets practical, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, in view of the mercy of God, Present your bodies to the Lord. What he's saying is, if you believe in all the gospel theology that I've been teaching from chapter 1 to 11, this is how your life's going to look like right now. Okay? So, what area of our life is Paul specifically addressing here in our passage today? Well, it's the area of our interpersonal relationships. Paul is saying that if you are someone who views life under the category of God's mercy— If you're someone who's always conscious about the cross, this is what your relationship with other people is going to look like. And and he breaks it down to two different groups of people here. Okay, one is your relationship with other Christians. You'll see that in verses 9 to 16. And second, your relationship uh, with those who are outside of the church but may be hostile to Christ and, and hostile to Christianity. And that's verses 17 to 21, okay, which will be our two points for today. Someone who lives their life in view of God's mercy will first treat other Christians with genuine love and overpower those who persecute them with good. 
Treat other Christians with genuine love and overpower those who persecute them with good. Let's start with our first point. Treat other Christians with genuine love. Okay, so as we start in our first chunk of the passage today, verses 9 to 16, it's important to know the structure. So in the opening of verse 9, in the very first sentence, Paul says, let love be genuine. And this is like the thesis statement of that whole chunk of the first part of the passage up to verse 16. Okay, so, so the beginning of verse 9, Paul opens up and says, here's the objective. The objective is for us to love others genuinely. And then from verses 9 to 16, he literally just starts listing out things to do in how we can love others genuinely. Okay, but, but before we start onto the list of things to do, I want to talk about the word genuine here a little bit because I think it's really important. In Greek, the word genuine literally is anupokritos, anupokritos, which means what it sounds like in English, unhypocritical. Now, think about this. Isn't this interesting? See, if you think that the church is filled with people who are struggling with hypocrisy, Paul agrees, <laughs> or else he wouldn't have written about it, you know? I mean, we all put a smile on. We know how to do that. We all extend a polite demeanor to other people at church. We all know how to do that. But oh my, is they're not so often at church backstabbing, gossiping, internal grievances undealt with, kind of just simmering in the silence. If the church was ever to be indicted for a sin, hypocrisy would definitely be one of the top ones. And if you ask most non-Christians why do they don't like church, I, I bet one of the top reasons that'll come up is that they think it's filled with hypocrites and, you know, they may have a point. And what Paul is trying to say here is, look, if you view life with gospel lenses on, your Christian relationships will go beyond just smiling at one another at church. It's going to go beyond just external politeness. Your heart's got to be consistent with your face. <laughs> okay? you got to be unhypocritical. Now, the question is, how do we do that? Because that's really hard to do. I mean, my brain can tell my lips to smile, and then my lips will smile. That's, that's easy. But if my brain tells my heart, love, most of the time, nothing happens. Nothing happens, because my heart doesn't really work like that, does it? So, what do we do? Well, that's where Paul continues here, verse 9 to 16. He tells us what to do in order to get our heart to love unhypocritically. And in fact, he gives us 10 things to do, okay? 10 things to do to cultivate unhypocritical love in your heart for others. Now, again, one more thing before I start. Some of us at this point may be tempted to say, you know, if you have to cultivate your heart to feel something, well, that means it's not genuine, right? Genuine love means you just kind of feel it automatically. Well, not necessarily. Think about most of the things that you love in life, okay? It may be a particular hobby or a sport or a particular flavor palette for food, okay? Most of them, you didn't just kind of all of a sudden fall in love with it, did you? Usually what happens is that you're either exposed to it for a long time or you intentionally expose yourself to it for a long time and then your heart follows, right? Whether that's uh, a discipline of exercising or that's a habit of reading 
or that's eating spicy food, you know, whatever, whatever it is, you were either exposed to it for a long time or intentionally you expose yourself to it for a long time and then you grow to love it. Why? Because love is usually acted upon before it's felt. Love is usually acted upon before it's felt. So here are 10 things that we can act upon in order to develop and cultivate a kind of love that's unhypocritical. Okay. And our, our first point will be longer here, but, but don't worry, our second point's gonna be shorter. All right, what can you do to grow an unhypocritical love? First, you can try to love people more than you love their opinion of you, okay? That's, that's the first thing Paul says to do. Try to love people more than you love their opinion of you. Look at the rest of verse nine. Abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. If you truly love someone, You'll hate the evil they're exposed to, and you will love the good that they should cling to. So in other words, if you truly love someone unhypocritically, you're going to pull them away from their sin, and you're going to push them towards Christ. And look, at times, if you do this, it might involve rebuke. It will. And, and I know how that sounds. You know, rebuking others sound like we're being judgmental. And, you know, often it is done in that way, in a judgmental way. But if done properly, humbly, kindly, Paul is saying here it's actually a form of love. If you love a drug addict or an alcoholic enough, you will initiate an intervention. You will. And it doesn't really matter what they think of you while you do it. Why? Because you love them more than you love their opinion of you, you see. Friends, the Bible says that sin destroys people drug-like. And if you truly love them, you will intervene. An old Time pastor E.H. Gifford once said, when your hate for someone has fully grown, it expresses itself in indifference. You've, you've heard that saying, right? The opposite of love isn't hate, it's indifference, it's true. Unhypocritical love is never indifferent, okay? So first thing you can do to cultivate unhypocritical love is try to love others more than you love their opinion of you. Second, try and view other Christians as they are, which is your eternal family. Okay, look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. You know, when a friend messes up consistently and royally, what do we usually say? I'm, I'm, I'm done with them, you know? That's it, that was, that was the last straw. But when a family member messes up, royally, repetitively even, what do we say? Usually we say, I'm done with them. But he's still my brother, you see. She's still my mom. He's still my son. You know why so many of us give up so quickly on other Christians at church? Because you still really don't believe they're family. To you, they're still just church acquaintances. But what would happen, friends, if the older men and women at our church truly view the younger men and women as their sons and daughters? What would happen if friends truly viewed each other as actual brothers and sisters? Third, try and treat peacemaking like you're in, you're in training. Try and treat peacemaking like you're in training. And if you don't catch all of these, don't worry. You can always go back into this video and, and, and write them down. But let me just go through them. Look at verse 11. It says, don't be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. When we think of an athlete practicing daily in the gym, right? Waking up hours before anyone else does, running that 
extra lap after the game is over. Spending money on coaching and training to get better. That, that's the picture here. Don't be slothful. Don't be lazy. Be fervent or literally fired up in spirit. About what? About loving others. About living in harmony with one another. Do you have past wounds that cause you to be reactive towards certain kinds of people at church? Welcome to the club. Work on it. Train. Practice. Hire a Christian counselor if you need to, to grow, to get better, you see. Treat peacemaking like, like you're an athlete in training. Fourth, be someone who can lend others hope. If you want to love people unhypocritically, try to be somebody who can lend others hope. Look at verse 12. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Okay, what does this mean? My, uh, my wife this past week made me watch a movie that I've put off for a long time now. And you've probably heard of it. It's called Unbroken. You know, a lot of you may know the story about a true story about an Olympic runner from the United States whose name is Louis Zamperini. And he was eventually drafted later in his life into World War II. But there's a scene in the beginning of the movie when Louis was a kid. I mean, he was trouble, right? He was not performing in any way. He was actually drunk when he was a kid already. Um, he, he got bullied in life uh, a lot and he just was, he wasn't going anywhere. But his brother, Pete, Pete was on the track team for the high school. He was excelling as a student and Pete, and Pete believed in Louis. He loved him, you see. So he trained him on in track and field, hopefully to get his life somewhere. And they trained, they trained, they trained. Until one point, Louis started to give up on himself. Louis said, and I quote, I can't do this, Pete. I'm not like you. I'm nothing. Just let me be nothing. Pete responds, yes, you can. You just got to train harder than those other guys. You got to fight harder than those other guys and you'll make it. Or you keep going as you are now and you'll be bum on the streets. You can do this, Lou. I believe you can. Louis looked at him discouraged and said, I don't believe. And Pete pauses and responds, well, I do. I do. Come on, let's keep going. Are you the kind of person that rejoices in hope when you see potential in people? Look, most of the Christians in your church, including yourself and myself, we're going to be very, very slow in showing progress in our Christian race. And you're only going to be able to see small changes happening rarely. And you know what? When you see those small changes, Paul says here, rejoice in hope. Celebrate it, point it out, don't give up on them. Tell them about it, encourage them, believe in them. Even when they themselves are giving up. Have hope for people, have hope. However, the fifth thing you gotta remember, and Paul quickly follows this up at the end of verse 12, as you have hope for people, you also have to remember your limitations. Okay, look at the end of verse 12. Paul says, be constant in prayer. Be constant in prayer. You know what happens when you pray? You're reminded that you are not God and that you can't do it all. And friends, I can't stress how important this is to remember, especially when you're dealing with people, especially when you're dealing with the relationships. You gotta know your limits. Let's make this more practical. 
Another way to put this is that you have to be able to differentiate between a goal and a hope. Between a goal and a hope, okay? A goal is something you can attain. A goal is something you can literally write down on a piece of paper and, and check it off. For example, this is a goal. I want to talk to my wife about this one interaction that upset me later at 5 p.m. So that's a goal. It's within your control to open your mouth and bring this up to your wife. Okay, you can do that. You can check it off a list. Or here's another goal. On Friday, I'm going to call this person and try hash things out, right? That's a goal. You can control that. You can pick up your phone, your phone and, and dial his number. That's something you can do. Now, a hope is different. A hope is something that you would like to see happen, but yet you have no control or power over it. Such as, I want to be reconciled with this person by the time we hang up. <laughs> you, you can't control that. That's out of your power. It takes one to forgive. It takes two to reconcile. And you just have no power over how the other person is going to respond. Or here's another example of a hope. I want this person to forgive me when I say I'm sorry. You can't control that. I want this person to change this much in three weeks. Those are all hopes. You can't control that. When dealing with people and relationships, you can't confuse hopes and goals, or else you'll be constantly disappointed. You'll get burnt out. And you could also be overbearing for people because you're micromanaging things that you can't control. You see, act upon your goals, but bring up your hopes in prayer to God. Know your limits. Pray. Number six, put your money where your mouth is. Look at the beginning of verse 13. Paul says, contribute to the needs of the saints. You see that? You see how practical the Bible is? The Bible here claims that unhypocritical love is it's more than just mere sentimentality. It's real. It pays, you see. It gives up things. You can sweet talk and pray for people all you want. But when push comes to shove and you do nothing, that's hypocritical. Seventh, be proactive in seeking people to comfort. Look at the end of verse 13. Seek to show hospitality. Now, yes, this literally means welcome people into your house, right? But, but it's more than just that. Back then, when you welcome people into your house, that wasn't just an act of material provision. It was a commitment to provide them with a safe place. It's a commitment uh, to take responsibility over their burdens, you see. And, and notice here, it says, seek to show hospitality. Look for it, you know, don't just take people in when they happen to stumble upon your doorstep. Get out of your way, you know. Have a keen eye for weary travelers, which we all are. And seek, be proactive about being a safe place for them, emotionally, relationally, materially, be proactive in seeking to comfort people. Eight, treat people better than they deserve. Let's go to verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So in the Bible, only God can bless people, okay? We, we can. So essentially, this is a call to pray again to God, but in a different vein than before. The, the point here is that in order to cultivate unhypocritical love, when someone hurts you, one of the first things you gotta do is pray to God and ask that God would bless them. <laughs> now, that doesn't feel natural, I know, but remember, love is acted upon before it's felt. And it's, it's hard to hate someone you're praying for, isn't it? 
look, even if your prayer sounds like this, God, bless that man. You're turning a corner, you see. You're, 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 you're at a good start. Pray for their blessing. It's acted upon before it's felt. Okay. Ninth, try your best to feel what others feel. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Unhypocritical love won't be satisfied until it can understand the internal world of its beloved. Now, that's hard to do. It's hard because often we're not attuned to how people feel. We're not trained in doing that. But also it's hard because we, it's not because we don't know what they feel, but we don't want to feel what they feel. For example, when someone gets something that we don't have, we know how they feel. We just don't want to rejoice with them. You know, when they post that holiday pic on Instagram that they went on that we don't get to go on, we don't want to feel what they feel. In fact, the opposite is true. It's, it's hard to not feel somewhat happy about other people's miseries at times, isn't it? If we're honest, you see. But Paul's saying, if we want to be someone who loves unhypocritically, we got to notice those subtle jealousies in our hearts. We got to notice those moments of sinister joy in our hearts. And we got to figure out why we feel them, confess them to a friend who's safe, who can walk us through it, you know, work on it proactively. Last, 10th, make friends with people who don't advantage you. Look at verse 16. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Now, Paul's not trying to rich guilt here. That's unhelpful in so many ways. But what he is saying is this, at times, it could be a healthy exercise to every now and then ask ourselves before the Lord in all honesty, if all my friends are equal or above me in their status quo, is my love for others really genuine? Or is it somehow only available for others who can match or elevate my status quo? I'm not saying that's always the case, of course. But a Christian who understands the sinfulness of their own heart would at least be open to the possibility that perhaps there's something in me that prefers people because somehow they advantage me in some way. So there you go. Ten things we can act upon to cultivate unhypocritical love. And I apologize that I went through them quickly. Again, you can go back and take notes on them. But, but for now, I, I really just have to um, cover all of them why? Because as I was studying this, I do think there's an organic interconnection between one and the other. You can't just do one without doing the others. For example, if, you have, if you're somebody who hopes in people, right? You have huge hopes for people, but you forget your limitations and then you micromanage. You won't end up loving them. You'll be over-controlling and, and you'll be disappointed all the time, you see. But on the other hand, if all you do is remind yourself of your limitations all the time, and you refuse to see the hope in people, you'll end up avoiding them. That's not loving either. Or for example, if we just give people money all the time without being invested emotionally with them, attuned with them, that's insulting. Or worse, that's spoiling. You see, that's not loving. Or if you rebuke them a lot and you push them towards Christ a lot, but yet you're not proactive in seeking to comfort them, that's crushing. That's not loving. We got to seek to do all of them. Just like the fruit of the Spirit, it's one fruit, you see. Love, patience, peace, joy, kindness, 
all of this is one thing. Unhypocritical love does them all. <laughs> and if you're feeling overwhelmed, I am too. I am. And look, this is why it is so important to have in view the mercy of God. You gotta remember these aren't things you, you gotta grow in in order to earn God's love. No, that's already been given to you mercifully by him on the cross. You know, these are things now that we get to try and grow in because we've already been accepted by God fully by his mercy on that cross, okay? Now, moving on to our second and much shorter point. A Christian who loves unhypocritically will show their love not only to fellow Christians, but also to those who may be outside of the church that's antagonistic or, or hostile to Christ and who persecute them, okay? Uh, which leads us to our second point. Um, Christians will interact with those who persecute them and try and overpower them with good, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna summarize this part of the passage because we're running out of time, but the gist of it can be seen in verses 17 and 21. Okay, verse 17 and 21 kind of sandwiches this part of the text uh, because it starts and ends it with the same theme. Look at verse 17, it says, repay no one evil for evil. And then look at verse 21. Do not be overpowered by evil, but overpower evil with good. Okay, so here's what Paul's saying. When someone commits an evil unto us and hurts us, it is easy, isn't it, to just want to put the gloves on and just kind of fight them back. It's easy to do that, and it feels right to do that because it feels like we're upholding justice when we do so. And, and Paul's saying here, that's, that's fine. That's good. That's good that you want to uphold justice. It's good that you want to overpower evil. But what he's also saying here is that as you attempt to overpower evil, do not harness the power of evil to do so. Don't use evil to fight evil. You, you're going to lose. I'm going to uh, use another Lord of the Rings analogy here because I heard someone else use it to explain this point, and I thought, I thought it was very helpful. What is, what is the whole premise of the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay, or books, sorry. I haven't read all the books. I love the movies, though. What's the premise of it is that there's this evil being named Sauron, right? And there's this ring that contains within it the evil power of Sauron, and it's a very powerful ring. And, and throughout the movie, there are many good people with very good intentions who decided to put the ring on. Why? To harness the power of evil. Why? To defeat Sauron. That's her justification, right? I want to harness the power of evil so that I can defeat evil to bring peace and justice back to Middle-earth. But if you know the story, you know what happens to all these people, right? Who puts the ring on. Every time someone puts that ring on, instead of harnessing the power to overcome evil, they themselves are overpowered by evil. You see, they become Gollum, or they become the necromancers, or whatever they're called. You see, originally, they had good intentions. They just wanted a bit of its power for a good purpose, but then they ended up being overpowered themselves. That's what Paul's saying here, verse 17, don't repay evil for evil. Don't try and defeat evil by harnessing the power of evil. Why not, verse 21, because you're going to be overpowered by it. You're gonna be overcome by it. It never works. But it feels good, doesn't it? When you, put, when, you, when you first put the ring on, you feel powerful, you see. You feel like you can take on all the injustices in the whole world and fight back. But when's the last time, you know, someone did you wrong 
And then you responded reactively back to them and you, and you bite back. And then they say, wow, you know what? When you put it that way, <laughs> that's such a good way to think about it. I'm gonna go home now and I'm gonna thank God for you and for your perspective. When does that happen? Never. It never happens. You know what does happen when you bite back and when you harness the power of evil to fight evil? The evil in them gets stirred up even more, right? And then they become more reactive. And then because of that, you then get triggered again and you get more reactive and then things heat up and then it affects the people around you and then your friend groups start to pick side and then evil wins. It overcomes, you see. You gotta resist harnessing the power of evil to defeat evil. You'll be overpowered by it instead. So what do you do then? Some of you may ask, do I just keep my mouth shut and ignore the evils in the world and just ignore the injustices of the world? No, look at verse 20. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap up burning coals on his head. It doesn't mean you can't speak up or do anything. To the contrary, speak up, push back, rebuke them if you need to but without putting on the ring, without harnessing the power of evil, but rather with the intent of love that longs for your enemy's redemption and well-being. If you do that, Paul continues to say in this confusing next part of the verse, you'll heap burning coals on their head. This is war imagery. You know, back then when somebody's trying to fight and attack your gates, people above would uh, put hot coal on their heads. You know, and what, what does that mean? And it's saying this, Paul's telling us that when you treat or speak against, even at times stop an enemy from doing evil, but with love, with their well-being and eventual salvation in mind, that doesn't equal defeat. You're still in the fight. For too many of us, we think that being kind and patient with our enemies means we're bowing down to them. It doesn't. Men and women with true grit and strength Fight back with patience, with gentleness. That is not weakness. It takes the power of the Spirit of Christ burning within us to be able to take it and do that. Not many do. See, here are the two extremes that people fall into. They either speak up and bite back, or they shut up and do nothing in the name of love. Here's what Christianity says. Speak up in love. You see, speak up in love. It takes the burning power of the Spirit for you to be able to do that. That is not defeat, that is grit, that is toughness, that's power. Now, here's what you need to know in order to have this kind of power. You gotta believe in verses 19 to 20, okay? Look at verse 19 to 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Says the Lord, that last phrase, says the Lord in the Old Testament, uh, prophets say that when it's like, you know, a sure thing, says the Lord. He'll do it. Christians, our worldview, our belief in the existence of an ultimately just God means that justice delayed is not justice denied. It's not, it can't be. If you believe in an ultimately just God, it can't be. And unless you truly believe that, you'll never have the power to resist putting on that ring, ever. 
God's method of defeating evil has always been with good. It's his job to uphold justice in the end. What we need to do is speak up in love, have in view the mercy of God. It's always been his method. When God saw the evil in this world, he overcame it, he did. How? By putting on that ring, no. By biting back, no. How did he do it? He did it by dying on a cross for it. For us, in the person of Jesus, God didn't wait for us to come knocking on his door. He pursued us. He became a safe place for us. He treated us better than we deserved. He prayed blessings upon us who persecuted him instead of curses. He put his money where his mouth is on that cross. You see, Jesus is the only one who's fulfilled all the 10 things that we mentioned earlier. He's the only one who's truly loved unhypocritically. And that's how he overcame evil. That's the formula, have in view the mercy of God. Jesus overpowered the evil in our hearts, yours and mine. How? With good, with sacrifice, with patience, with love. That's the formula. Live like that. When you seek to bring justice and peace back onto earth, do you have in view the mercy of God? Will you do that? Let me leave us all with, with a challenge. I mean, all of us that are hearing this, but, but specifically Covenant City Church members. Here's the challenge. Would you join me and try and take one of the 10 principles that we talked about in our first point, and, and let's try and make it our goal to apply it to someone else in our church. Just one of the 10, pick one. Try and apply it to one of the people at our church, even if at first it feels unnatural. Remember, love is acted upon before it's felt. Would you do that? Would you do that and, and take one small step toward making the exercise of cultivating unhypocritical love a habit for our community, a routine for our community, a part of our day-to-day -day culture? If, if we do this, hopefully, hopefully, I pray, that this church will be able to display a little bit, just a little bit, of what a heavenly community should feel like when it's placed on earth. Will you do this? I pray you will. Let's pray. Father, how far of a bar you've, you've put in this passage for us. How, uh, how, how, how much, how incompetent I feel right now. And I'm, I'm thinking others as well. It's a tall order. And I pray that as we look at this list, we remember and have your mercy in view, that these are not a list of things we have to jump through in order for you to accept us. You've already accepted us on the cross. And now we're called to display that kind of acceptance and love to others. How? By these things. Give us the burning power of the Spirit to not be slothful, to treat this seriously like we're in training, to be intentional about it, to grit our teeth as we speak up in love to those who persecute us and as we are patient um, to others in our church. And oh, Father, remind us that many people are patient with us as well. Only a fool would think otherwise. Help us 
extend the gospel patience and love to one another and let you do your sanctifying work, not in the absence of mess, but dead center in the middle of it. We're a messy church. Will you have more mercy on us and sanctify us and allow us to do a little bit of what your word tells us to do? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.